Hello and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr. We'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to Banter. Joining us today is Phil Wallach, who's a senior fellow with us at AEI, where he studies America's separation of powers, focusing on regulatory policy issues and also the relationship between Congress and the administrative state. Before joining us at AEI, he was a fellow at Brookings and R Street. He also served as a fellow with the House Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress in 2019. We're going to get into all topics Congress today, but we especially want to plug his new book, Why Congress, which will be published by Oxford University Press on May 30th. Thanks for joining us on Banter, Phil. So glad to be with you. It's great to have Phil. Phil is, I don't want any of our other scholars to take this wrong, but I always think of Phil as one of our most cerebral scholars. <laughs> He's deep, deep thinking. I'm not, I'm not sure that's a word of praise. Oh, maybe. I think it is. Around I mean, we are a think is. tank afterwards. <laughs> Around here it is. That's mm-hmm. right, Phoebe. And Oxford University Press and why Congress? I'm told I have not. It's, it's pre-publication, so I have to admit, even though I'm the president of AI, I have not actually read the book. So, But I have some ideas and some interest in this topic for a long time, so I... I really want to talk about it, and Phoebe's right. I think we... you've intuited its truths before reading it. Oh, <laughs> look at that. That's very nice. That's the nicest smooth. thing a scholar ever said about me, <laughs> at least on this show. So, Phil, let's first talk about the original purpose of Congress. What was it supposed to be, What, what and what, what was it when it's doing its job right? Give us some examples of that, and then we'll, we'll go to what's gone wrong. Okay, so in the biggest picture... Congress is is the center of our representative government. And that's something that's so obvious to us as Americans, as the inheritors of the English system that that came before it, that we, we don't really stop to think about it very often. But representative government is a different achievement than democracy. The, the idea of representative government is that you really need lots of different people bringing together the different elements that make up a country, and especially in our extended republic, that's especially important because America... So it's America, we the people. It's we the people, and there's no expectation that we the people becomes a singular collective noun. We need to keep representing all the diverse elements and uh, allowing them to bring their differences to each other face-to-face and work through those differences and find ways of accommodating each other. And that really works in in a plural legislature, and it really doesn't work if you try to jam everything through a unitary executive. So in our constitutional architecture, Congress is really the place where we where we reckon with our country's diversity, which is certainly as imposing today as it was in, in 1787. Or, or some would say more imposing. Sure. Yeah. And so the so most we, important branch. Well, so I, I, certainly I would say the most important to the legitimation of our government. If, if we don't have a sense that what the federal government is doing comes from us, then we will reject it as, as an imposition. Mm-hmm. And so the way we need to be able to feel like the federal government is ours is by believing in our representative system, by trusting in the representatives we send and believing that the process by which those representatives make laws together actually fairly represents all of our interests, even though we understand that we don't get to come out the winner every time. And when has that uh, that sense that this is this has happened correctly and in a way that accrued to the f- the faith of the American people been at its best? When has Congress acted well in 
being that that face of democracy or that representation of we the people? I think through a lot of our history, it's worked pretty well. And I have two chapters in the book which specifically h highlight examples because I think it's important to show in action sort of what does it get us when Congress is working well. So the two chapters, are one is about World War II and the other is about civil rights. So the World War II chapter brings to light a lot of information about what Congress was up to during the war, which I think when most people think of World War II and they try to come up with something for Congress, I don't know, they come up with President Roosevelt addressing Congress on... In, in, what did he call himself? Doctor, cure the depression, then doctor, win the war? And he well, was yes, in charge of it all? That's, that's true. That, that transition was maybe more attributable to Congress than, than, you, might, than you might think. So... Con Congress really maintained control over over the domestic economy and and the questions of how to impose the burdens of the war equitably during World War II and that that's not that's not the same thing as winning the war there's a reason we we all have our hagiographies of our generals they they did a lot that Congress didn't do but the question of how we were going to pay for this war, how we were going to deal with all the rationing and inflation that came out of it, those were questions that Congress ultimately figured out how to deal with. Especially after 1942, Congress was actually a pretty conservative institution. It was not just a place that did everything that President Roosevelt wanted. And so in the book, I highlight a lot of the ways that they pushed back against some of Roosevelt's self-aggrandizement at times, how they sort of made sure that the American economy would return to normal private enterprise once the war had ended, and how they, yeah, especially importantly, defied Roosevelt on, on questions of taxes, overriding his veto at, at, at one point very dramatically, because they, they had a better sense of just how much pain the American people could bear than the president did. And in the post-war period, I mean, there's the Marshall Plan and the, the, the congressional discussions over issues concerning the fight against communism. But then you, your other example is the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act, or what's the story there? So there, I think people have a sense that Congress was certainly a big part of the story, but I think mostly people think of Congress as a negative in this process. They think, oh, well, this Congress empowered these Southerners to drag out the fight on civil rights for, for many years. And if it hadn't been for Congress empowering them, maybe we could have, you know, done away with segregation at a much earlier moment, maybe mm -hmm. in the 1950s or something like that. And so the book tries to give a revisionist take on that and say, actually, that's got things all wrong. It was when the process worked its way through Congress at its best that we built this bipartisan, really truly impressive coalition for civil rights. Mm. Uh, and it was by allowing the Southerners to play out their resistance in the halls of Congress that ultimately allowed them to become reconciled to their defeat on this issue. So Congress, Congress's processes weren't just, oh, well, we got civil rights in spite of these processes. Mm. We got civil rights and we got it as an enduring success precisely because of the process. I think that's right. And, and there have been other historians that have written that story, too. So your revisionist, I think, is to the popular culture yes. perception. And, you know, there's a famous Republican members in the House that played a big role. And Senator Dirksen's the final sure. decision to support civil rights and Senator Humphrey's efforts to 
persuade the, the, the Congress. So you're, I mean, any other personalities I haven't mentioned or particular turning points in that, in that legislative battle? Those are those are some important people you mentioned. I think you know. I think so many people have this idea of Lyndon Johnson twisting arms. That's how it must have gotten through. But in fact, Mike Mansfield, Lyndon Johnson's successor as Senate Majority Leader, he he listened to Johnson telling him that the way to get this through was to twist arms, and he said, "Nope, that's just not my philosophy of how government works." He he really believed in working the process. He believed in treating his Southern colleagues as sort of worthy of respect, even as he figured out how to outflank them and make sure that they lost. And and the Southerners really appreciated the extent to which Mansfield and, and his ally, Hubert Humphrey, figured out ways of of running this process in a respectful way. So even though they were they were certainly you know, coming to rhetorical blows in the course of this 75-day filibuster in 1964, they they really still managed a level of comedy that we are not so used to today. And I mean, of course, part of that is that they were part of the same party and that they wanted to keep being able to work together as a majority party. And that they certainly they certainly did so. It's not as if Richard Russell and other Southerners were suddenly out in the wilderness for having opposed civil rights. They they continued to be sort of important coalition oh, partners. Oh, and, and Senator Urban rallied himself <laughs> seven years later to become the great hero right. of the Watergate hearings. A fascination <laughs> of the New York Times. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, okay, so those are the lions of the old Congress, and, and sometimes there's a lot of people in this town or out in the country that will say, why isn't the country, the, why isn't Congress the way it used to be? Do you agree with that? And and what are the bad signs? What are the examples of, of a broken Congress? Well, in terms of how we got from that era of of a grand national debate that really worked through a difficult question to our to our current status today, where I feel like often people rightly think of Congress as a place for name calling more than substantive resolution of big questions. It's a, it's not it's not an it's not just a one sentence story. I, I yeah. have, it's it's not the shortest book ever. And 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 sort of the main the main historical part is talking about the evolution of Congress from let's say 1970 to the 2010s. And the story there is that liberals gained a lot of strength in Congress at the end of the 1960s and the early 1970s. And they were very frustrated by how much continuing power those old Southern bulls had. And as a result, they really turned the institution inside out. Congress in the 1970s transformed itself in ways that are really impressive, just how much change they were willing to push through. But it became a much more radically decentralized place. It was the era of subcommittee government. The, the staff on Capitol Hill just exploded, and, and a lot of that was building out these committee staffs that would sort of become the centers for policy entrepreneurship. So that was that was a really an experiment, a new way of doing things in Congress, and it was exciting, and it didn't always work so well. There was a lot of discontent, especially during the administration of Jimmy Carter, with sort of not being able to get Congress on the same page, even though Democrats had huge majorities during Carter's term, and a Democrat in the White House, of course, they really couldn't all pull together in the same direction on some of their most important priorities. So that left a lot of discontent with how Congress had been going. 
And from the mid-1980s onward, you really see a, a slow but steady march toward centralization in Congress, especially in the House at first, but eventually in the 21st century in the Senate as well. And so more and more, you have each chamber become a place where you sort of have a pitched battle between Democrats and Republicans. And, you and run by the majority leaders of the Very team. much. Everything, everything coming to run through the leadership offices, committee chairmen becoming less sort of independent power brokers and more just sort of servants of the speaker or the majority leader. And so this whole sense that agenda control is sort of all in the leadership's hands. And what is the leadership going to do with that? They're going to make sure to present their party in the best light possible and the other party in the worst light possible. That's that's and a political goal. That's not mm -hmm. a policy goal. That's not a governing goal. And so politics is what rises to the top at the expense of policy and governance. And does former Speaker Gingrich play a leading role in that change in your judgment or is he, he a big he, figure in your book? He definitely does. But I think it's important to realize that he, he didn't just bring his ideas out of nowhere he rose to prominence in the Republican Party because Republicans were so frustrated with the centralizing what they saw as power grabs that the Democrats in the House were mm -hmm. already making. And especially Speaker Jim Wright in, in the mid-1980s is a key figure. So Gingrich is responsible for bringing down Wright. That's sort of how his star rises. But ironically, even though he talks a big game about what a tyrant Wright was and and how how wrong it was that he tried to run everything out of his hip pocket. Once he becomes speaker, that's exactly what he tries mm -hmm. to do. Uh, he, 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 he wants to think of Congress like a business. That was sort of central to his rhetoric in the mid-1990s. He doesn't really have a – he's not really a legislator at heart, Gingrich isn't. He, he's somebody who came up excoriating Congress as a corrupt body, and he's somebody who once he got the speaker's office – he really thought that he could sort of go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the president, that he had a mandate from the American people, and that what that meant was that Congress was going to push through this clear agenda that the American people had, had charged them with and that everything was going to fall away in their path. And that didn't work out so well. Mostly Bill Clinton got the better of him in some of those mid-1990s conflicts. Welfare reform was a one where that's, they did something together. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's one where Clinton came around and, and more or less embraced the Republicans' policies. And, and that looks like an enduring success, I would say. But I think, I don't know, I guess from the vantage point of 2023, welfare reform, I'd say, looks a little bit less important than it did in 1996. Yeah, yeah. What about, well, I want Phoebe to yeah. get us into the, the debt ceiling debate and, and ask a question about that. But before I do that, I just want to ask you about you know, the most recent congressional session that ended at the end of last year. And and when you look at the scorecard on congressional achievements over the first two years of the Biden administration, what, what do you see total failure? No, I'd, I'd say the 117th Congress had some bright spots in terms of defying just strict partisan warfare and actually coming up with some bipartisan achievements. And almost all of those came out of the Senate. Yes. Right? It's not a matter of the House under Nancy Pelosi having figured out a way to build big coalitions. It was really that Nancy Pelosi held her Democrats tightly enough in control that, that she could say, we're going to pass whatever the Senate 
passes, and we're not going to mess mess around with it too much. So you have these uh, you have these bills like the infrastructure bill, yeah. mm-hmm. even a gun control bill, the Chips Act. All of these things were negotiated largely in in the Senate and and then passed through the House. Uh, sort of on the strength of and the Democratic Senate negotiations support. were led by a bipartisan group of senators, including a newly affiliated AI scholar, Rob Portman, and Kirsten Cinema, who's who's been to, into our building and, and spoken about that, and Susan Collins. Isn't that a sign of Congress working correctly? Yeah, and it's interesting how how much Mitch McConnell was actually one of the people who signed on to a lot yeah. of those bills, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. At, at, at heart, I think McConnell has something of, of a deal maker's sensibility, at least in the right context. And so, yeah, I, I, I thought there was a lot of positive development in, in that 117th Congress, but, but it still leaves me rather concerned about the House mm-hmm. as an institution and the, the extent to which Democrats and Republicans in the House just see each other as enemies, more or less. I think Pelosi's, you know, had a remarkable career as speaker, and it, it's it's a big question mark hanging over Washington, sort of. Well, right whether, now, and whether Phoebe anyone wants, whether wants, anyone can replicate Phoebe, her. Let, let's get mm-hmm. into that topic. Yeah, I mean, before we turn to the debt ceiling, I was curious when you talk about kind of the centralization of Congress and the power that the leader of the House and the Senate have amassed over time. I'm curious when you look back at the speaker vote for House Republicans this year, a lot of the things that they wanted changed, they did describe as solutions to kind of the disempowerment of members in favor of leaders. But I think it was unclear from the outside, at least to me, whether those were legitimate changes to the process or whether it was really more of a political battle with McCarthy and the amount of power that they would allow him to have kind of from that farther right wing. So do you think that anything that they proposed actually is helpful in that fight to kind of keep Congress less centralized. Yeah. If my book had come out <laughs> before the speakership fight, I would have just took a lot of credit for all these things. Yeah. Oh, saying. you can still take it. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I, I liked a lot of what some of the insurgents on the right were saying. This group usually thought of as led by Representative Chip Roy of Texas, mm-hmm. right, who who was holding out for rules changes they they weren't just sort of saying never McCarthy under any circumstance. They actually wanted the the institution to run differently, and they they talked a very good game about wanting more decentralized power in the House. Mm-hmm. So I, I I liked a lot of that. I I think getting some of those people on the Rules Committee creates a lot of interesting possibilities. I think most of that is still TBD though. Mm-hmm. We. we it, we're we're still early in the 118th Congress, and so far, what we've seen is Republicans managed to pull together to pass some bills that don't have any future as laws. Yeah, because they're not going to get picked up in the Democratic Senate, or or certainly not signed by President Biden. And you've seen, you know, we're in progress on this big debt ceiling negotiation, which is sort of the first big test of of whether the Speaker can build some working governing coalition, which is probably going to have to be a broad bipartisan coalition. Mm-hmm. But that's sort of the centralized model by the nature of the fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Biden and McCarthy are negotiating. If if they can work something out, then we'll push it through Congress. That's the leader model. Mm-hmm. So in terms of what we can actually hope for in terms of 
the decentralized House getting to work, it actually requires some members to want to legislate. Yeah. And in this political context, that means members figuring out how to build bipartisan coalitions. So on, on, on immigration, yeah, it's kind of a, an impressive accomplishment that Republicans were able to pu pull together and push their immigration bill through the House. But that was a sort of a stake in the ground to help mark mark their territory to help make it clear what their party is for it's not it's not something that anyone expects to actually help change the law but meanwhile we've mm. actually got a crisis on our southern border it would be nice if now mm. having put their stake in the ground some people find a way to actually legislate in a way that will produce changes in the law that president biden can sign on to mm. I'd love to see that. I think there is there is a chance that, you know, I don't think Kevin McCarthy is going to try to be like Nancy Pelosi running everything out of out of his office because in part because I don't think he's capable given the current size and shape of his majority. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a chance to to see some other people become successful policy entrepreneurs, but we've got to, we've got to see it happen. And it's not going to that question is not going to be answered by the debt ceiling resolution because by its very nature, it's this sort of one-off thing that well, really does have to be done between the yeah, speaker and the president. And, right. The, and and the, spending, the spending stuff that will come later in the year also. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're pretty used to the way that these deals get cut is the appropriators are, are working their negotiations and then this, the, the leadership comes in and sort of seals everything and gets the deal done. And we and we've been even in this bitterly partisan time. We're used to passing spending bills with three hundred or three hundred and fifty votes through the House. Right. I, I assume that they'll be able to continue that record this year. I don't, you know, maybe there'll be a government shutdown. Maybe there'll be continuing resolutions to put things off to December. Neither of those things would be very surprising. But at the end of the day, I expect they'll get a bipartisan deal. But it'll be another sort of leader brokered deal largely and what I'm what I'm looking for most is on these other big big ticket items like like immigration C can we can we see some action there where we're actually going for a change in the law instead of just staking out our partisan positions and how much do you think of the problems and the partisanship and the divide that's prevented the kinds of solutions happening in congress is the result of the primary system and the influence of in everybody's primaries of the of the loudest and strongest, most progressive on the left and most rabid conservative on the right. I mean, are you? do you hold the way in which we do primaries and select candidates for office as accountable for some of Congress's problems? I definitely think it's not been a great development. If, if I could go back to a time 50 years ago when we just had parties select their candidates instead of holding primaries for Congress, I think that would instantly make our political system more sensible and more workable. And I'd do it in a heartbeat. I, I don't see the American people getting too excited about the idea of taking choices away from voters and into the hands of political elites. That just doesn't sound mm -hmm. in tune with the political moment, unfortunately. So I think we're kind of stuck with, with, with the primary electorates playing an outsized role in determining the makeup of Congress. I think there's a, you know, I think literally most members of the House probably think of themselves as more vulnerable to a primary challenge than a general election mm -hmm. challenge. Yes, but does isn't the answer to that more 
participation by the middle of the rotors or, or the people that are in the broad middle. That The reason primaries go the way they go is because the most interested parties, the most right. angry parties have the incentive to vote and the people that right. just think things are okay. But the minute they decide, well, things are not okay. I mean, I'm sort of impressed by this race in Jacksonville yesterday where the, the Democrat won just because it looked like she expanded the voting base. Right. And there have been other examples where you know, everyone thought the the more strident a candidate would win, and then this sort of person closer to the center did win. And the reason was those constituencies voted in numbers they hadn't before. They, they instead of leaving it to the the most outraged or the most aggressive participants, they said, "Well, no, I guess I better pay attention to this primary." Isn't that the answer, or am I wrong about that? I, I think if we can get that, that's great. Yeah, uh, yeah, the question yeah, yeah. is how, and I mean. I think there's a lot of sort of small bore mechanical stuff you can do to help that along by like reducing the number of election vo voters are asked to show up for. That would just mm -hmm. that would be a big help. If you hold your primary on some obscure day where nothing else is right. getting voted on, yeah. then you really are getting only the most devoted. I'm also pretty enthusiastic about a lot of the electoral reform ideas like like final five or ranked choice voting and those kinds of things. I think that that in effect helps expand the primary electorates or, mm -hmm. or helps helps the middle of the road people have more of a voice. I think from what we've seen with the with the jurisdictions that are experimenting with those, I think the results are pretty positive. I don't think it's a silver bullet, but I, I, I like those that's, I, I like those reforms. Uh, and those are clearly constitutional. They're just a different way of selecting candidates. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. I know that one of the themes of your book as well is that if we don't mediate these issues in Congress, we end up dealing with them in other institutions and other places. Can you tell us a little bit about where you see those fights playing out now if they're not really happening as much in Congress? Right. So power abhors a vacuum. And when Congress doesn't resolve issues, the other branches step in. That, and, and largely that means the bureaucracy or the, the president with the with the bureaucracy in tow but and the courts and you know one thing that i think thinking about congress's trajectory has helped me appreciate it is it's just how fanatical people have gotten about the supreme court mm -hmm. because they've come to see it as a kind of super legislature and given that's the way they think of it they think it needs to have sort of representative functions yeah. in the way a legislature should so they get sort of obsessively caught up in the personalities of, of who these nine people are and they just and that's want, all bad that's, that's, <laughs> that's really all bad. bad that's really bad that's really yeah. bad and they they also you know they want they want the court to somehow work out reasonable solutions but that's not that's not the the way the court is not there for yeah. making deals that's not the way the justices think and the problem with having courts try to resolve everything is that the, the finality of, of a constitutional law decision sort of takes something out of politics and says, mm -hmm. we can't we can't negotiate over this anymore. One group is just illegitimate views. So gay marriage, it's a great example. I mean, I, I consider myself a supporter of gay marriage as a policy, but the Obergefell decision is just a monstrosity, in my opinion, because it, it says... All you people who are opponents of gay marriage, which, by the way, would have included almost all the Americans in our whole country's history, you were you were all just bigots, and your view is henceforth inadmissible in our in our mm -hmm. political life. 
and we can never we can never listen to you again. That, that that's very destructive to our ability to make sense of an issue, to work mm-hmm. through it, and to get people reconciled to to. To, especially because gay marriage, the, the political process was already working. There were all these, mm-hmm. there were all these active fights, and and you know the the folks who were in favor of gay marriage were winning victory after victory in the political process. We didn't need to take it out of the political process. Yeah, and the, you're kind of seeing that happen in the opposite way with Dobbs, where right. something was kind of you know inadmissible, and now it is again, and you're trying to kind of rehabilitate that view back into a debate and discussion. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah, and I think I think you know the fact that now abortion is actually a harder and more problematic for issue for Republicans yeah. is really suggestive. Yeah, right, because now they actually have to be responsible in a lot of these states. And if they institute policies that are way harsher than what the median voter would like, they're responsible for mm-hmm. that, and they can get held responsible at the polls. And they have to make an argument for it. And, That's and, right, and yeah. work it out. That's it's, right. It's not, if the yeah. fact that the fact that you know a small minority of Americans have complete conviction on this issue isn't enough yeah. because that's not how we resolve political d- debates even about the most important issues. So I, I think what's going on after Dobbs is is, is really healthy. It's not always going to be pretty. Uh, they're going to make mistakes. That that's part of that's part of self government. It's going to be different in different states for yep. a while, and that's, that's part of okay. our federal system. Yep. One question to finish off: You must be therefore, or maybe not, a supporter of this effort on the court to roll back the the the, the Chevron deference and allowing the administrative agencies to assert power that Congress has not explicitly granted. Or or do you have a different view of that? Yeah, so the court has been developing what they call the major questions doctrine, and and I'm a staunch supporter of that. I think that the idea is basically you you can't just take vaguely specified statutory powers that are sort of sitting out there in the in the U.S. code and use those as a way of launching ambitious new administrative actions that legislators never debated or would have countenanced when they passed the laws in question. that's That seems really healthy. It seems a way to empower our Congresses going forward. I think it's it's really to the good. I do have some sympathies with people who say it's a little bit nebulous, exactly what it constitutes a major question. So I think there's still some things that need to be worked out about it. But but overall, I'd say, yeah, it's healthy when we look at the big issues to say the executive branch shouldn't be allowed to circumvent the legislature just because it's convenient for mm-hmm. them to do so. Or because the legislature has abandoned the field or has refused to act. I mean, they, they have to be forced to step up. Yes, that would be good. It's, it's, it's another one of those things that's easy to say, hard to yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because we said we'd talk about the debt ceiling very quickly, what do you think are the odds of a default? And I'm curious to know if there was a default, who you think would be blamed? I'm pretty optimistic about the negotiations that are Mm -hmm. now finally taking place. I've always thought as long as you have two parties sort of seeing each other as basically rational negotiating partners, there's really no reason to have a default. Mm -hmm. They can always just push things off until a later date. And they can do that really pretty fast if they need to. So I've always thought that the media has been kind of making people go crazy 
about the possibility of a default more mm-hmm. than they ought more than they ought to be. And I, I hope that I'm proved <laughs> right <laughs> right in that. I, I think a default, you know, it, it's hard to know exactly how the markets would react to it. I think a lot would depend on how the political actors were were talking to each other and about each other yeah. at that point. If they basically all said, "Oops, <laughs> we're going to get this solved in a jiffy." I think that's a lot different than if one side is saying this this our, our opponents are the most awful people in the history of the world and they're going to keep causing us to stop to to not make our payments and we're going to keep missing them and mm-hmm. nothing's going to get better. I think those are very different scenarios. I, I think a lot on the question of who would get blamed, a lot would depend on the particulars. I, I do think Republicans worry that they'll always get blamed. Yeah. And there's something to that. At the same time, I think the president abandoned his no negotiation posture yeah. because he he saw himself starting to get blamed. Yeah, yeah, and I think when, and if I may, just pipe in here. I think when things go really bad, the president of the United States always gets blamed. He's he's in charge. He's the top person, mm-hmm. and so there's that. I also I was going to ask you just a question about Speaker McCarthy, you know, because you've studied not only Congress but how to be a good leader or how to be a good congressman or representative. And he struck me as being more collaborative mm-hmm. and more friendly to the rank and file members than the more the strong, you know, high profile, more dictatorial leaders who turn ended up turning off their 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 the members of their caucus. And I I wonder if McCarthy could put through a, a debt ceiling vote that wasn't completely satisfactory to the far right, but because he's been so inclusive with them and friendly and less arrogant about his yeah. role. Am I is there something there about how to be a good legislator legislator means being a a good guy or a friendly person or a good collaborator? I think there's different models of legislative leadership for different political contexts. And I think holding together Republicans who are actually a pretty diverse bunch these days requires a certain amount of 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 flexibility and sort of maybe backslapping geniality is sort of a a pretty useful asset in that. I hope you're right. I see the same things about McCarthy. I think he was known back in his days in California as somebody who knew how to work across the aisle. I think he's got kind of a deal maker's sensibility about him. He's got a very hard job at the yeah. same time. Yeah. I, I, it's just hard to know exactly what some of these Republican lawmakers, some of whom opposed his election in the first place, it's, it's hard to know exactly what's motivating them, what they want, whether they really want to see policymaking at all in many cases. So he's got his work cut out for him. I think I think people have been underestimating him and— uh, and so let, he shows us sort of this different model of, of legislative leadership. Okay. With that, I think this has been a great conversation, Phil. And your book is really great. It, everyone's told me it's really great. People that have read it say it's really great. I can tell it's really great. You're really great. So when it comes out, listeners, go out and buy it. Mm-hmm. Thanks very much, everybody. See you next time. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.